you're about to listen to the Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders and for coders about all aspects of life as a developer. I'm Will, the curmudgeonly experienced developer. And I'm Beach, the optimistic newbie developer. Welcome to another episode of the Complete Developer Podcast. Before we get started, I want to do a quick shout out to a friend of ours that we met down in Atlanta, um, Jason Belcher. He has been just such a huge help. I don't know if you guys have noticed the quality of our audio has been going up drastically the last few episodes, and it's been because of him. He's been uh, giving me some tips and pointers on uh, on Twitter and then uh, privately through some emails. Um, and he, he wrote something to me that uh, I just have to read on air because it is absolutely awesome. And uh, Jason, when we get some t-shirts in, which are on order, we've got one for you that we're going to send down to you. Nice. Um, and what, what he wrote was, uh, I love how bombastic and energetic Will is balanced against your, referring to me, calm bedside manner. I don't know that the comparison has ever been made where I'm bombastic and you're calm. <laughs> I guess I can see that, though, because you probably edit out when you're bombastic a little bit more. I, I, I do, and you, when it comes to coding, though, you are very outgoing and you are very yeah. strongly opinionated, whereas I'm still learning, so I kind of have a more calm manner, I guess. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. But anyways, uh, again, Jason, thanks for all your help. And uh, like I said, we're going to be sending you a t-shirt as soon as those come in. Uh, so, Will, what have uh, you been fighting with this week? I am fighting with a JavaScript widget. And it it's nothing really bad except it's just the way that it's resizing a Google map. And it is irritating the daylights out of me. I, I think I might have mentioned this on an earlier podcast, but we got it working and then we extended the widget and did more stuff with it, and now it's not working again, and there's something with the sizing that's off. You were working on that when I came in today. Yes, and I was. it's extremely frustrating because what looks like it should work is not working, and I, I'm not able to find in the Chrome debugger where things are going wrong. And I've been stepping through. You know, some of it is because of JavaScript code that's like catching the window resize and changing the size of controls based on it because it's sort of supposed to be partially responsive. Like mm-hmm. when they shrink the screen past certain points, some elements just drop off. And as a result of that, I'm, I'm having a lot of issues. Let's just put it that way. I'm, it's It's been pretty frustrating. And then I've got, um, you know, at the, the day job, uh, I've got a pretty large component that I'm going to be showing to clients. And so that's that's piled on on top of that. Um, so I'm kind of doing both things at once. Uh, my, my side project is also collecting revenue now, which I'm, I'm pretty excited about, or at least last I heard it was supposed to be released today. I haven't actually talked to the other guy yet to make sure that it actually went live. But that's, that's pretty nice though. You're what you've been working on. I know you've been working on this longer than we've had the podcast out. Yeah, I've been working on it for a little over a year. Yeah. And, uh, that's pretty awesome. That's starting to, to pay off. Mm-hmm. So it's it's good. What about you? Well, this week I haven't been doing that much. I've kind of been focused on just the work that you and I have been doing, uh, learning more on the the in Hibernate and uh, practicing up on my C sharp. I've been doing a few interviews. Um, got a really interesting uh, offer to go up to New York for a. Uh, coding school up there and uh, it'll be paid for and then I'll have a job coming out of it but it's not a guarantee that I'll end up back here in Nashville and it's uh, Will and I've been talking about it and if I do decide to do this it's going to kind of cause some fun little problems for us for the podcast yeah I mean we'll be you know we'll be doing it remote or something I mean, we, we know of other podcasts that are doing this successfully We've got some ideas lined up for episodes while I'm doing this, uh, should it come about, that uh, they'll be good for new developers who may be interested in something like this 
but also for uh, the coders out there that have more experience and that may have gone a more traditional route to kind of understand where the new guys that are coming out of boot camps and programs like this. Yeah, because there were no boot camps, I don't think. Actually, there may have been when I first started, but the the cost was so exorbitant that you know, because like right now, you're you know, if you if you take this this gig, they're paying for your training. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I started, if you wanted to do the boot camp, you paid for it. And most boot camps are like that still, yeah. and they're they range from about uh, five to ten thousand up to twenty to thirty thousand, depending on where they are and what they offer and how long they are. Yeah. Well, I've been doing that, and I've also been working on some of our social media campaigns and actually got an email today from Google that uh, our Google AdWords campaign has been uh, so successful they want to um, do a consultation with us. So I've got that going on, and then... uh, this morning, I got a very interesting phone call from one of my professors from med school. She had seen where I wasn't in school anymore on LinkedIn and called me up just to see how I was doing and what what was going on. It was actually really sweet, and uh, we had a good little conversation. I was kind of, it was a pleasant surprise this morning on my drive-in. Cool. So I guess it's uh, it's about that time, right? It sure is. So let's uh, let's roll play. that uh, music, right? Exactly. This week for IOTs, we're continuing our talk on languages. For IoT, and uh, the last language we covered was C, so we're going to go to C++. The philosophy of both the C and C++ language is trust the programmer. Because yeah. it's his foot, he can blow it off if he wants to. <laughs> this is basically the idea of uh, knowing what you shouldn't do is just as important as knowing what you should do. C++ came about as a result of the object-oriented paradigm, and it's basically an object-oriented preprocessor for C, uh, starting in 1979, which isn't too long after C came out. Some of the features of C++ as a language is that it is a compiled language, um, and C++ compiles directly to a machine's native code, allowing it to be one of the fastest languages in the world if it's optimized. It is a strongly typed, unsafe language. C++ is a language that expects the programmer to know what he or she is doing, but allows for incredible amounts of control as a result. As of the latest C++ standard, C++ supports both manifest and inferred typing, allowing flexibility and a means of avoiding verbosity where desired. It also supports both static and dynamic type checking. It offers remarkable support for procedural, generic, and object-oriented programming paradigms, uh, with many other paradigms being possible as well. Like functional. I was going to say, I've heard a lot about functional lately. I was going to ask you. As, uh, I don't know that it's... I don't know that it's as straight up functional as something like Erlang, mm-hmm. because the language itself is not protecting you. Well, it wasn't designed doing... to be a functional language; right. it was designed to be object oriented. And it's it's more like uh, the way C sharp is on that. That mm-hmm. okay, you can write functional code in there to a degree. Yeah, but there's some things that the compiler is not going to protect you from if you do them. But again, that also goes down to their design philosophy. You know, C++, it's your foot. Exactly. That's... <laughs> uh, some other other aspects. It is portable. Uh, it's one of the most frequently used languages in the world. Um, it has a yeah. wide range of compilers that run on many different platforms. And it underlies a lot of other compilers as well. A mm-hmm. lot of other systems. You know, you'll get... Deep enough, you know, if you're if you're doing something like, uh, well, you know, Ruby, Python, 
C sharp, you'll you'll at some level start calling into libraries. If you go down far enough, you'll get into C plus plus. Of course, it'll be compiled down to assembly. On that same note, it is upwards compatible with C. Yes. Uh, considering that it builds directly off C, it's compatible with almost all C code. You can put C code in it, but not the other way around. Exactly, yeah. And it can use C libraries with uh, very few modifications. Yes, and another neat thing you can do, or maybe a sadistic thing you can do, is actually um, inline assembler mm -hmm. as well. I think you've mentioned that before. Yes, I've, I've, I've done that a few times. Um, it didn't go as well as I would have liked. The, the other really great thing is just the tons of libraries out there yes. for C++. And um, I don't think we really need to go into why this is a good language for IoT because we pretty much covered that. Yeah. And um, the majority of this information comes from learncpp.com, which will be linked in the show notes. So, Will, what do we have this week? In this episode, we're going to discuss 10 reasons why you might not want to go into development. And before we do this, I think it's probably important to explain why we're doing it. Uh, the main reason is it's better to know now rather than later if you're getting into development or if you're kind of early in your career. Uh, it's also easier to work on personal issues beforehand. Some of these things can actually be um, trained out. Some of them can be dealt with. And if you know it going in and you still really want to do it, you can find ways to cope. Whereas if you just end up in a work environment and you have to deal with it, that's probably not ideal. And the first one is, is you don't deal well with change. As software developers, we're exposed to change on a constant basis. Um, if you're in the JavaScript framework space, pretty much your framework will change about every six months. You know, some other spaces are a little bit more mature, not as fast moving. You know, if you're doing C Sharp, well, Microsoft is going to change your data access framework every four or five years on average. I mean, that's just, that's the way it's worked since, well, since before.net. And, you know, some older technologies, I mean, even you know, some of the Delphi programmers I've worked with, you know, their, their database access technologies change. This is Delphi. Um, so if you don't deal well with change, uh, you're probably not going to do too well. Yeah. Uh, now, the other thing that can be a little dysfunctional here is while being afraid of change is bad, uh, it also goes in the other direction. And always wanting change can be just as destructive. Like if you flit around from one thing to the next, always jumping to the new, you know, for instance, in JavaScript, if you jump to the new framework every time something new comes out, you're not going to get anywhere. Well, this goes back to what we had talked about in previous episodes about uh, resume-driven development. Yeah, it's it's that, and it's, it's not even necessarily about resume so much as it is quickly getting to a point of discontent with what you're working with. You've got to figure out how you're going to strike a balance on how you deal with change because it's going to be up in your face all the time. Yeah, and it it causes you know loss of knowledge, uh, you know systems knowledge. It's it, there's an incredible amount of time that's wasted in trying to keep up with every new change. So I would advise on this is to figure out where your balance point is, and it'll be a little different depending on what environment you're programming in like if you're doing if you're doing mainframe stuff on government computers it's pretty safe to assume you're just not going to change very much whereas if you're doing again javascript frameworks which seems to be the most to me the most pathological example of constant change i like it but holy cow man it's rough you have to find a balance within your environment where you're changing enough to be able to survive and to still be relevant, you know, six months, a year, five years out, but not changing so frequently that you're not relevant now. The next thing that we have is you don't uh, fancy, Will's word, you don't like sitting quietly and typing most of the day. Development can be very isolating. Uh, take it from an extrovert who is also outgoing. And it can, it can be a surprising strain on, uh, on the mind and the body, and we've talked about that a little bit. Yeah. Um, I know I've noticed different areas of my neck and shoulders hurting that didn't before. Yeah, um, and sometimes you just, you've, 
you're sitting and you're dealing with computers so much that it warps your view of how interpersonal relationships should work. Oh yeah, I've I've had conversations with with friends that are developers and it's kind of where the term pedantic nerd comes from because yeah. sometimes they I have some friends that take everything you say literally. Yeah. Well, I mean when you're in that mode of thought, social interactions, especially if you were already a little bit socially awkward, um, if you just sat in front of a computer for you know, a week or two and you didn't talk to anybody other than dealing with a machine. Uh, I've had those sort of things or dealing with like, you know, my wife and one other person for a few weeks. And when you come out of there, you are sometimes a little bit socially stunted at best. Uh, the other thing you'll see is, is an inability to read subtle cues because you've been dealing with a machine all the time that tells you what's wrong. It either tells you what's wrong or it, doesn't and you go figure it out not it halfway tells you yeah that can be that can be difficult yeah it's, it's just a, it's a it's almost a mental uh, context switch and so that's it, it's relatively difficult and there's another aspect that comes out as well uh, that has to do with um, self-motivation most places you will actually like working don't micromanage Right. You're not going to have somebody checking on you every 15 minutes to make sure you're getting things done because, well, for one thing, that's a horrible development environment. If you are actually productive, that'll Goodness. kill it. I could not imagine someone pestering me every 15 minutes. I've worked there. Uh, How do you get things done? You don't. And eventually, you get downsized. Uh, and you're completely okay with that. Yeah. <laughs> and and the, the other side of this is it can be really bad if you have trouble motivating yourself. Yes, and I've known quite a few developers that, you know, even if they started out well, they'll they'll go along, you know, six, eight months, a year, two years, and then suddenly something changes, and their motivation is gone. That maybe they're tired of working on what they're working on, or they feel like they aren't appreciated, they have problems at home, and suddenly their ability to self-regulate and self-motivate on their code disappears, and the, their productivity just drops to zero or close to it. Or they just barely skate by. I can totally see that. I mean, coming from the education in med school, that was a big thing where you had to be self-motivated because there was so much self-study that you had to do. If you weren't doing that, you weren't making it. And it's sort of the same deal here. Now, it can be really good if you are able to self-motivate because then you can thrive in this environment. But you always have to watch because your ability to self-motivate is not a constant. It's a variable. Yeah, you got to be able to, well, it's almost like you have to be able to know when to ramp up the self-motivation and know when you're almost like you're coasting along and you can back down on it some so that you can You don't burn out. It. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and you have to figure out how to ramp up quickly too. Yeah. Like for me, getting, you know, honestly getting a little bit ticked off mm -hmm. will, will, get, will get me way more productive, way more motivated. See, that wouldn't work for me because... I get ticked off and I'm I lose focus. Of course, I don't stay angry very long. I kind of I get ticked off and I I call you and rant for a little while and I'm fine. Yeah. Um, I I work best and I'm most motivated when I am detached. Yeah, I, I can't be detached. I you know I have to. I either have to be really happy or a little bit irritated. Maybe a little hungry. But you have to figure out what those things, what those cues are for you, what your emotional state is, and manage that, and notice when you're slipping one way or the other. Another thing that will indicate that you probably shouldn't get into software development is when you have difficulty with long-term, heavily abstract thought, one of the most important facets of software development is your ability to take a problem and put it into terms where you can actually solve it. Either break it down, uh, abstract it, you know, uh, break it into pieces, look at it as a system, you know, turn it into a tree, whatever you have to do to make it where it's a solvable problem. It's very highly abstract. Uh, it's very similar to the way that, you know, in, in mathematics, you break down equations and you figure out you know, how you can cancel variables out and how you can do things where so you can get it to where it's actually solvable instead of... Yeah, if you can do the problem my sister posted on my Facebook page this morning... Um, you're, you're pretty good. Uh, 
it was it was kind of funny. It was, a little, it was an algebra problem, but uh, she uh, she said uh, math problem of the day. What time is it? If it is, it's nine times closer to noon from midnight than it is from midnight to noon. You have to kind of abstract that out and create the variables. And now I, I woke up and all right, I'm I'm that guy that wakes up and checks his Facebook on my phone. And uh, I woke up and saw that and just immediately went into problem solving mode yeah. and posted the the answer. Then I got a, a text from my sister a little later in the day, I guess when she went on her lunch break, that said I got it right. <laughs> um, so that, that sort of abstraction is, is pretty uh, central and core to software development, and it's really a learned skill. It's I don't really think that it's necessarily... I don't, it's, it's obviously not something you're born with. I think there's people that aren't capable of doing it. Well, it's just like there, there are people that... Uh, it's just like I can't dunk a basketball. There are people who are able to do this easier than others and some that can't do it at all and some who learn it and take a natural inkling to it or yeah can just go right into doing it as soon as they learn how yeah but it's 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 very important to look into how you are able to deal with abstract problems and some of it is just figuring out ways to think about things because maybe you know the the way that I abstract a problem might not work for you so it's it's somewhat subjective. <laughs> it generally doesn't. And I'll tell you guys, being the the Padawan to, to well-being, my mentor. Um, code monkey and code flunky. Yeah. <laughs> the way his mind works doesn't always match up with the way mine does. But a good mentor is one that recognizes that and can help you find the way that your mind works. Yeah. Same thing with a good teacher. Uh, both of my little sisters are teachers and will back me up on this, I'm sure, that a good teacher doesn't teach you so much the way they do it, but they teach you... The way you do it. Exactly. And, and the reason heavily abstract thought is also a, a bit problematic is that you can't always write things down because some things just don't lend themselves well to paper. I, I and, completely understand that. I've tried to do that a few times when in my studying code, and sometimes I'm trying to find... I spend more time finding a way to write it down on paper... Than you would coding it. Exactly. Because code is how you write it down. You, know, you don't write it on paper and then code it necessarily. I mean, it's great if you can. Don't get me wrong. It's If you can abstract it and do it in a way that you can actually put it on paper and the problem is you know, at that level where that's doable, great. <laughs> that's like when... Um, when we were first starting the podcast, like before we'd even recorded our first episode, we had uh, the the whiteboard and we were kind of trying to outline what we were going to be doing and where things were going to go. We went through two or three different times where we just completely erased the whiteboard because... Yeah, we couldn't agree. Well, it wasn't that we couldn't agree. We could not come up with a way of writing it down that was actually effective yeah, and, and conveying the information back. Exactly. And it wasn't until... We started recording and editing and publishing that we really got the flow down. Yeah, and we still don't have it perfect, but it's a way better. Yes. Now, there's a good quote here from uh, Edgar Dykstra. You, you might recognize his name from computer science. The effective exploitation of his powers of abstraction must be regarded as one of the most vital activities of a competent programmer. Because that's that's essentially what you're doing. You're you're trying to convert a problem into the human form into something a machine can actually execute under the constraints that the machine has. You know that's that's just an important thing to remember. And if you're having difficulty with thinking in the abstract over a long term, especially when things get difficult, that may be a sign that you don't need to become a programmer. It's also very much a sign that you probably just need to practice. Now, the next thing that can be problematic is, you know, at least in the development career as it is right now, hopefully this gets better, is if you don't like job hopping. If you think that you're going to get a job and you're going to stay there 30 years, 40 years and then retire, that's probably not going to happen. If you think you're going to stay there three years, two years, one year, a lot of times, that's not really the way it goes. I mean, sometimes it does, right? I've my longest tenure was three years at one job. This is this is in contrast to 
a lot of other careers. I know I worked in hospitals. My mom is a nurse, and she's been at the same hospital. Um, it's changed ownerships and names a few times, but it's been the same hospital the whole time because you build, you get your benefits and everything through that. You don't want to leave, and that's a difference in... Basically, that is a difference in our roles as developers and how we work in the workforce as opposed to most of the rest of the people in the workforce and their mindset. Yeah, well, I mean, like the best way to get a raise as a software developer is to go to a different company Mm -hmm. because you almost always get a raise. There's been, like, I think one time maybe that I... One, maybe once or twice that I've that I've actually taken a pay cut, moving to a different job. Um, when I have, it's been you know, it's been a situation where like I was working at you know Death March Inc. and I got you know I, I switched over to you know relaxed cool company and it's like oh it cost you know it was a thousand dollar a year pay cut or something. So that's is, worth it though, just for the mental. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's been that sort of thing where I've, you know, taken a contract position, you know, done, you know, done contract work, but I was allowed to work from home 100% of the time or, you know, some X percent. Well, that's, that's, uh... and really, you know, but basically the, the main way that most developers get a pay raise is they move to a different job. I don't know. Would it be better in the long run for them to keep the same programmers for, I mean, at least three or four years, I understand the idea of getting fresh blood in and fresh ideas, but to keep the same people around just so they don't have to go through that retraining process oh, absolutely every year. Would. Economically, it would be, it would be way better. Um, but what you'll typically find is that companies don't hand out raises, um, especially if there's like a slight economic downturn or a big one like we've had since 2008. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just don't. They don't give out increases, or they do a, do that little thing where they go, "Oh, let's give you an increase at just under the rate of inflation, uh, under the reported rate of inflation." Which is, um, yeah, that and makes sense. It's kind of it almost those raises are almost a slap in the face because it's like, okay, they know enough to know that you're expecting to be able to you know keep the same living standards, and it's like they gave you a raise, but they're not going to give you enough to. To actually make it. It's almost like you're they're treating you as if you are at the peak of your pay grade. Yeah. I know when I was working at the hospital, I got several raises the first few years until I reached the maximum I could, you know, the, the top of that pay grade. Um, and my mother's been there for a long time. The only time she ever gets a raise is when they raise the pay grade. But she's been at the same job because she has her retirement through there. She has her benefits through there. and Yeah. And you know, it's just not that way for developers most places. Um, you'll see some companies. I've, I've worked at a few where you go in and you're like, oh, yeah, this is so-and-so. He's been at the company for 20 years. Um, you'll see a few of those, but you're mostly not going to see that. You might. You, now, you will see another thing, which is called the Dead Sea Effect. And that's where you have a company that has, you know, they've got two or three developers that have been there a long time. And those developers are not really there a long time because they're valued by the company. They're there because, you know, they get stuff done and they're not good enough to go anywhere else. I was about to say, I have heard that if you go to a company and they have developers that have been there for 10 to 15, 20 years, that the reason they are still there is either they have investments in the company or they cannot get a job anywhere else. Yeah, or they don't want to. I mean, there's also the guys that, you know, they the pay rate they came in at, you know, and they've gotten some raises and all that, but they live so far below their means because they basically, they work all day and they go home and they watch TV. Not a bad life. And that's all they do. And, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to buy a bigger house. They're not going to be raising a family. They're just kind of there. You'll see a lot of those guys too, but. You know, the Dead Sea effect is very real. But another thing that um, happens with job hopping is that you get exposed to different ways of doing things. And that's honestly one of the primary ways a lot of developers learn and broaden their, their experience and their skill set is jumping around. 
Well, I think going back to one of our earlier points that this is a good thing, but uh, like we were talking about with the newest thing out, doing it too often could be bad. Um, another thing that'll really hurt you is if you're not a team player, uh, there's there's kind of a public perception of software developers that we're not very good with people and very good at you know, functioning around other people. And if you really can't work with a team, you're probably not cut out for this. You've got to, you need to find something else to do. The days when software development was a one person show where you could, you know, build a product and launch it and do everything by yourself and do everything that was required, including the project management, the documentation, release planning, and all those pieces. Uh, those days are pretty much gone for any piece of software that's commercial. Of course, if it's internal, then you have an internal customer and you still have to deal with that problem. Another thing that's important in this is that um, other than whatever runtime or compiler or execution environment that you're using, the main audience of your code is other developers. And if you're not comfortable working in a team in a situation where problems you create are problems for other people, it's probably not a good idea to go into software development because that's about 99.9% of what you'll find out there. You're not going to go to a lot of companies where you're the only developer on the team or you're the only person on the team and they just say, hey, fix this, and they turn you loose on it. This seems to go in contrast with what we said earlier about uh, being able to sit quietly and type most of the day and being okay with isolation. Yeah, well, I mean, you get a little bit of both. This is one thing that really attracts me to coding is I am very outgoing, and so I love that interaction, but I get so much more done on my own than I do working in a group. So you know, teamwork is really a big deal, and one of, the, one of the things that comes into this that a lot of people don't think about, that they probably should, is you're going to be around a bunch of people that have very limited social skills. Um, and a lot of them really got into programming so they can avoid people. I mean, there's, there's a sizable percentage of those folks left. There's a sizable percentage coming in. Um, and if you don't do well with geeks and people that are kind of awkward, that this may be a problem. And if you're not comfortable dealing with people that are socially awkward and you can't, you can't effectively deal with them and you can't effectively uh, get them to tell you things that you need to know or work with them or, you know, read their their social cues, which kind of tend to be a little bit off. It's really a balance here because, like we said earlier, there's a lot of isolation and you need to be comfortable with the isolation, but you also need to be able to work in a team. Yeah, and it's you're going to have teams that have got some people in there that you just, that are just weird. And there, there's a surprising number of developers that have got some very odd social tics and very odd ways of thinking and acting, you know, would probably be considered pathological and be considered a disorder in another time, but now it's, it's actually handy. And so you'll be exposed to those people. It's okay if you, if you can deal with them. If you can't, it's probably not a good place for you. You can't force the environment to conform to you. You have to, you have to figure out some way to be okay with them. And a lot of it is, is, you know, once you meet a person, if you think they're a little bit odd, you know, talk to them a little bit more. Because a lot of times they're not as awkward as you think. I was going to say, I have made several friends with people who came off as completely just weird and odd to the vast majority. And once you get to know them, sometimes they can be some of the most interesting, fun people. Yeah. Um, That's probably the best way to, to put that. And you you have to figure out your comfort level with dealing with that. Because, I mean, you, to some degree, you can you can get away without having to deal with them too much. You know, if you just sit at your desk and do your job. It's a matter of what you're comfortable with doing. Are you like me and you like bringing people out of their shells? Or are you like Will, who was somebody who was like that and worked their way out of it and can deal with those people? But Will, you're not really the type that goes out and brings people out of their shell as much as I am. Right. That's, I mean, that's not my thing. No, it's not. And so you have to find out what type of person you are. And so, you know, again, that, that kind of comes down to communication. 
Which brings us to our next point. Which is you might not want to be a developer if you are not an effective writer, or if you can't clearly express your ideas. Software is hard enough without uh, trying to follow the logic of someone who can't express their ideas. And right. I, know I can talk from personal experience here as a new developer. I've, I want to get out there and expose myself to as much code as I can, but I also want to show what I know and what I can do. I'll get on and look at stuff on GitHub and see this code that is very well documented and it is super helpful, and I learned so much from it. It's not just about how you write code or just about commenting, but when you're discussing things internally and trying to figure out how you're going to approach a problem, or you're documenting how you did approach the problem and how you handled it, effective writing skills are important. If you don't have them, if you don't have the ability to effectively put your ideas out there in a way that can be consumed by other people, other people will be choosing how you build your programs. Exactly. It's a power and control thing, and you will lose it if you don't have that ability. One of the best suggestions I have heard for new programmers who want to get involved in the open source community is to find a project on GitHub that needs documentation. Which is like 90% of them. Exactly. It's a a large majority of them need that. And that's something that as new programmers, as new developers we can go out and do without having to know the intricate details of the code. Like As we're learning the code, we can go in and write that documentation, and then that is, um, is going to be a boon for you when you're out looking for a job to say, yeah, I, I helped out, I made commits on these open source projects, and it's the documentation, and people... Companies that are hiring are looking at that going, you know, we need somebody that's good at documentation. Well, the other thing, uh, it's also a kind of guerrilla networking thing. You know, another thing to bear in mind here is that other people have to maintain your stuff. So if you can't document um, any piece of code that you've written and and actually provide, especially like FAQs or, you know, common issues, those, those kind of things, you can't write that up well. Um, a problem that happens at 3 o'clock in the morning or when your wife is in labor or you're in labor or whatever or you're on vacation, if you can't document that well, suddenly that problem, if it occurs when you're gone or you're otherwise indisposed, it can become your problem. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of myself in labor and it's just not happening. I mean... Uh, yeah, it's the beard. It's, 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 yeah, it's the beard. Arnold didn't have the beard when he went into labor. Yeah, that's true. Because we know that when you don't have good documentation, it's extremely frustrating. And this brings us to the next point, is if you're not able to channel your frustration well, you really don't need to become a software developer. Like, you need to do this first. You need to figure out how to effectively use any frustration you have to get things done. And it doesn't have to be the same way that other people do it. Like we've explained before, Will, your, your way of dealing with frustration is you take that and use that as motivation to go in and solve the problem or go in and code. Whereas me, I don't code effectively when I'm frustrated. Right, so. you take it as a sign that you need to step back from the problem and get a bigger perspective, whereas I take it as a sign I need to attack because it's it's a personality difference. And both work. Both work great, and it just depends on what works for you. And I'm sure there are other modes out there to deal with frustration than just the two that you and I use. Oh yeah, there's dozens. But the main thing is, is if you cannot deal with with frustration, with a frustrating situation, and you can't effectively either step away and look at the problem a different way, or attack it, or do something effective, like if it just completely tangles you up, then the first thing to come along that you can't immediately solve is going to sink you. Yeah, that's that's and very true. That is you're a not gonna... horrible place to be because not only will the first thing coming along sink you, but you know it, and you get to dread it. Yeah, and this is—it's one thing if this happens while you're learning or while you're in school, but imagine yourself in the workforce and hitting that point for the first time—that it really 
just knocks you off your game and you're not able to get anything done and you don't know what to do to fix the problem. Well, I mean, you'll have those moments anyway. I mean, I have a, you know, as, as a senior dev, I, I mean, when you got here today. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm not saying. I was, I was fighting with something I still couldn't figure out, but it's the fact that I know, you know, and I'm still very frustrated and I'm hoping it's not coming out of my voice in the podcast, but, you know, that bug is going to die when you leave here tonight. And, yeah, that's that's kind of what I was saying was you know how you deal with that. And for you, that is motivation to work harder. Like when I got here, I sat back and let him do his thing because that's what would make for a better podcast and make for yeah. life easier on him. And this this brings up another thing you know, about about resilience because you know frustration is a thing that, that causes a lot of problems and you know, this goes this kind of funnels back into your code because if you're not resilient you're not planning for failure modes right this is our this is the next thing in the list is if you don't like planning for failure modes if you want to write code and go okay everything is going to work every time the first time no and way. in all environments and you don't like to think about how it can go wrong because you think that's pessimistic or because it's just not the way you think, you're going to have a bad time. I've written things that I tested on everything else that I could think of, but I just didn't test on my machine because that was my setup. And so when I, um, it was a game for my nieces, and when I put it out there for them to play, I went on to kind of play it um, on my machine to so that I could tell them how to play, and it didn't work. (laughs) It worked in IE and Edge and Firefox, but I use Chrome, and it didn't work in Chrome. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and there's... um, Some developers will probably have heard of this before, but there's uh, Weinberg's second law of software development, and that law is if builders built buildings the way programmers wrote programs, then the first woodpecker that came along would destroy civilization. (laughs) That. Um, that's Gerald Weinberg, Psychology Computer Programming. It was published in the early 70s, I think. Is that something I should read? Well, yeah, with your psych background, you probably should. Uh, but failure modes are something that you have to be comfortable planning for. You have to be a little bit comfortable uh, having sort of a pessimistic thought pattern. doesn't mean you take it into the rest of your life, but you do have to use it when you're developing. Sort of like lawyers always tell you when you're signing a contract begin with the end in mind, well, you write your code with everything that can go wrong that you could possibly think of in mind. It's almost like I'm a realist with a pessimistic attitude and an optimistic view. Well, the thing about it is if you plan for the worst that you can think of and you catch those things early, you can make the best happen. Exactly. But when you don't plan, and failure modes never happen when it's convenient. That's the important thing to really take away here. It's not going to happen when you're sitting there debugging. It's going to happen on the server at you know four thirty in the morning when you're you know flying to California or something. I was going to say Bora Bora, but um... yeah, you're not you know unless you really job hopped a lot to increase your salary, which leads us right into the very final point that we have to to make is. You really might not want to be a developer if you're just looking for a job. Programming is a craft, as much as it is engineering, and without a sense of pride, you're just going to produce the same as everybody else, and everybody produces crap. Yeah, well, at some point, we all do. Yeah, everybody poops. Everybody poops. (laughs) That's a book, I believe. No, but you will eventually produce crap if you don't take pride in your work, because... It will make you slipshod. It'll make you, if you don't take ownership of a project that you're working on, your output is going to be pretty bad. You know, maybe not initially, you know, when it's still interesting, but you know, when you're a few months in, you're bored and you're not looking at this thing going, okay, this is, you know, this is my baby and I want to make it run well. And, you know, this is my artistic expression, but, oh, this is how I'm paying the power bill this month. I told you guys in the intro that I got a call from one of my former med school professors today. And um, she was telling me that she was sad that I wasn't still in school and thought I'd make a great doctor. But after explaining to her 
what I was doing now and learning to code. She said, she said that she was very happy I had found something I was as passionate about as I was about being a doctor. Yeah. Well, and you know, some of that too is you're still fairly new. It's like a relationship. When it's new, it's easy to enjoy it. But when it's been going on for a while, that's when that's when your feelings are more accurate. You know, it's 10 years in and, you know, it's it's putting the toilet paper roll on backwards, which, by the way, is, you know, where it comes out underneath. That's, you know, the original patent goes over the top. It should yeah. always go over the top. There's yeah, that's, no question that's whatsoever. Way, that's the way the U.S. Patent Office patent application for the toilet paper roll is. So if you're doing it the other way, you're, you're a heathen. But you're just wrong. Yeah, there you go. Did you see what we said about pedantic nerds? That's what this is like. If you want to deal with those kind of people, this is the sort of thing that you'll have these conversations at work. I had this conversation at work like a month ago. Uh, without a, a sense of wonder and you know, continual attempts to learn, your career will stagnate and die. Now, by die, I don't necessarily mean, oh, you're going to get fired, but you'll be stuck. You're not going to move off of where you are. And there's plenty of developers that are perfectly comfortable with that, by the way. They get to a certain point, and, you know, they're kind of okay, and they're floating along, and they're waiting on retirement. Mm-hmm. And it is also, this doesn't mean that you're you're always comfortable. In fact, it really means that you're headed towards discomfort because that's where you're going to see growth. Yeah, and it's, it's really important. It's important not to confuse happiness and comfort. That's a very good point. Because they're not the same thing. They're, they really aren't, and that is... Yeah, we're, we're really getting into philosophy here, and there is a huge difference between feeling comfortable and being happy. Comfort sometimes can be a trap, and it can make it where you're not happy, because it's the same thing all the time. You're not challenged, you're stagnant, and it's especially for developers that last a while that's probably the worst place you could possibly be because that's that's the death of a career, really. That's the death of growth. Well, that's the death of a career, no matter where you are, is when you become stagnant. Right, but when things change for the auto mechanic, a lot of times those things are changing because programmers changed it. That's a very good point. We're, we're the sharp edge of the blade. You know, they're... You know, they're on the cutting edge. We're what cuts. So that's the 10 things that uh, are reasons why you might not want to be a developer. Just remember that most of these are things that you can control and decisions that you make. So they are things that we need to look at as new developers. Is this something I want to deal with? Is this something that I'm comfortable with? And if you listen to this podcast and you're going, you know, I I like that. That's something I like about development to most of the things we've said. You probably should be a developer. Yeah. If you've listened to this and said, oh man, that sounds horrible. There are plenty of other opportunities, even within the tech world. You know, a lot of jobs are not just programming, but they have programming in them. Um, for instance, being a sysadmin, you might be doing DevOps stuff and you, you're writing scripts in Bash or you're writing you know, scripts with PowerShell or something like that. You're still programming, but you're not building apps. And that's, that's a good point because that may be something that is really interesting to some people who want to do a little programming, who find some programming interesting, but that's not what they want to do all the time. With that said, let's wrap it up and... Uh, Will, what do you have for us uh, this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, this week I have one of my favorite tools that I use probably at least two or three times a day. In fact, used it for about five hours this morning. We were discussing things, and it's Notepad++. I know a lot of developers already know about this. It's a lightweight text editor, but it's not quite as lightweight as regular Windows Notepad or um, you know, G-Edit on Linux. Mm-hmm. And it's... It's not as hardcore as Vim. And this tool, will um, it's able to read a number of different languages and actually you know, read the syntax and you know, color code and do all those kind of things. It doesn't give you full, you know, it doesn't give you IntelliSense and all that. Um, although I did notice this morning it was giving me some IntelliSense when I was typing English, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, I actually used to use Notepad++ for most of my uh, HTML and... Uh, 
CSS editing until I got into the Visual Studio Code. Yeah, and I still use it. In fact, um, a couple of weeks ago, I had to use it to edit C Sharp and compile on the command line. Wow. Because I was working on a machine that had a Trojan, and we were, I was having to clean that up. And the when Visual Studio was running with the antivirus, you couldn't type in there and get a response mm-hmm. within a minute. But I could open up CS files in Notepad++ and edit them. And then I had a batch file for building on the command line. Yeah. And I would build it. And just to make sure that it built. So I couldn't actually, you know, test my code, but I could I could code and get some things mm-hmm. done. Or get some them. Some old school stuff. That there. was Yeah, when you know, when a senior developer or when a more senior developer to me walks in and looks at what I'm doing and they just shake their head and they walk out, that's when I know <laughs> I probably could have gotten away without doing that. But it, I didn't want to sit there and watch the progress bar. I needed to do something. It's a pretty decent little editor and it's it's really lightweight, and there's also a huge, uh, there's a huge set of plugins available. So there's FTP plugins, and there's spell checkers, and there's all these other pieces. So you can you can almost build your own IDE out of the plugins. Yeah, you, you can build at least a a lightweight development environment that suits what you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So I know when you were editing PHP code on our site, yeah, you know that was real handy for you. Yeah, I was back then I was still using Notepad++ and it was it was very useful. Um, like I said, I I liked it until I started using VS Code and I just I think I like VS Code cuz I like Visual Studio. So you can get this tool at notepad-plus-plus.org. If you have a question or comment for us, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed under Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is OMFG Hello by Argo Fox and is also licensed under Creative Commons and available on SoundCloud. For references, show notes, and to sign up to our email list, be sure and check out the website at www.completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Thanks for listening. See you next time.